Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart here once again with Lance Roberts for our new weekly market recap program. I think this is the fourth one we've done so far. Lance, great to have you back. Well, always good to be here on a Friday. Yeah, well, you say that. Um, <laughs> last Friday, things looked pretty grim. Um, yeah. We were watching basically the markets wash out and uh, we spent a fair amount of time talking about where we thought the market was going to head next, right? And mm -hmm. one of the things that you'd mentioned was that the market was looking very oversold. Uh, we had a nice long conversation about uh, the importance of moving averages. You sort of used an elastic band analogy here. Um, and, uh, and then we had headed into this week. So um, without uh, giving away the, uh, the punchline myself, tell us what happened this week. Well, it was uh, pretty much a bloodbath. Most, you know, the first part of the week, of course, you know, on Wednesday in particular, that was the FOMC meeting. And as we talked about last Friday, we were expecting a rally because, again, the market was so deeply oversold. We were sitting on the October lows, really need, you know, the market really needed a relief rally at some point. But, you know, on Friday, on Wednesday, going into the Fed meeting, we were up about 2% on the NASDAQ. And right when the Fed released their minutes, uh, the, the market rocketed up to about three, a little over 3% of the NASDAQ. I'm like, okay, well, look, here's the rally. And then, of course, Jerome Powell started speaking. And when he uttered the word sooner and faster in regards to quantitative tightening, that was all it took. And the market actually went negative within just a few minutes after that. So all that gain was given up, certainly not looking good into Thursday. But you know, this market continued to hold those October lows. Uh, now we're talking about the S&P. So, you know, if you're looking at the NASDAQ, it's a little different story over there, but the S&P was holding very firmly those, uh, those October lows. Of course, got some great earnings out from Microsoft last week, got some great earnings out from Apple, sorry, this week, got some great earnings out from Apple this week, arguably two of the best run companies, you know, in the markets right now. Uh, that helped give some support you know, because there's such a large cap weighting in the S&P 500 index that helped lend some support and kept the markets really kind of above that, that important low of October. Uh, then, on, of course, on today, on Friday, the market actually mustered a really decent rally into the close, uh, NASDAQ up over 3% the close. And ironically, despite all of the volatility this past week, and I tell you, if, if you're a volatility trader, this has been a great one to trade all week long. We actually finished the week higher than where we started. So, you know, it's, it's a, a positive week in the books for uh, the markets, although it certainly, you know, if you kind of wrote it out this week and we're watching it kind of tick by tick, it certainly doesn't feel like much of a victory. Yeah, I, uh, I did watch Tick for Tick this week, which I don't normally do, uh, don't normally have the bandwidth to do. But fortunately, with the Wealthion conference that we just had, I had a little bit more time to actually watch the markets this week. We'll talk about the conference, too, in just a moment. Um, but man, uh, I aged uh, many years this week with all the activity. And it was crazy. And I think this is you mentioned the word volatility. We, yeah. we picked that as, as the theme for last week. Um, I think the theme I would pick for this week is there's a whole lot of shaking going on because yeah. uh, that's exactly what this week did. It threw off the bears. It then threw off the bulls. Um, it really, I, I, I mean, almost kind of on an hour for hour basis. Uh, there were so many reversals this week. It was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, both intraday and then, you know, usually whatever the overnight market did was undone in the first hour of, of trading. Um, but anyways, long story short, um, you, as you, the important thing is what you ended with, which is that this week ended 
uh, as an up week, even though it didn't necessarily feel like that to those of us that slog all the way through it. Um, but it ended as a strongly as a strong ending to the week, right? I mean, we had a lot of vacillation, a lot of um, uncertainty all, all week, and then kind of in the last hour of trading, things just picked a direction and just boom, you know, yeah. rocketed higher. I think Nasdaq's up over three percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question for you is, you know, last week I said, as I said, you kind of gave us a masterclass in understanding the difference between oversold and undersold, and that even. Even if there's a long-term trend that you have confidence in, there's a lot of stuff that can happen in the short term that can be entirely, you know, non-correlated and contrary to your larger trend. And you've got to be aware of that stuff because if you just position for the longer trend, well, your 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 theory might be right in the long run, but you you might get killed along the way by some of these zigs and zags. So, do you see what ha- you last week you were talking about? Hey. Markets are oversold. You, you think that there's going to be a reversal and, and probably a short-term or a near-term positive bounce. And then we discussed about whether you want to use that bounce to, to sell into strength or not. But do you feel like we've, we've bottomed this week and that we're likely more likely to see higher prices next? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I just did a Fox Business interview today with Charles Payne talking. He asked me the same question. He says, you know, was that kind of capitulatory sell-off we had last Monday, was that the bottom? Um, we may have put, and again, uh, you know, this is a really, let me, let me back up one thing before I say this. And, and, you know, it is very important. You said something very important about positioning and people have this idea that I'm going to position for something for the long term. I'm going to bet this market's going to go down 30% or I'm, I'm going to bet it's going to go up 40% or whatever it is. And they have the best of intentions at that moment. They go, I know I'm right, right? I'm going to make this bet. I'm just going to write it out no matter what. Well, as soon as it goes against them, even a little bit, and, and we've seen this a lot, this, this week was a real challenge to a lot of these individuals that are, are, were the committed traders. When you have that kind of volatility, people begin to, you begin to second, second guess yourself. Look, I second guess myself all week long. You know, it's like, you know, this, you know, this isn't the way I thought it was going to work out. But you have you have to have some conviction, and that's absolutely very true. But most people don't wind up actually staying convicted when it goes too far against them. They bail out of the trade at the wrong time. They get into the trade at the wrong time, and so this is you know this is one thing to be very you know, kind of an important point to make here is that when we talk about what we think will happen next, you know predictions, you know. Are not great, and and you know if we take a look at the very the people that make the best predictions on the planet, it's meteorologists, and they're right three days in advance. That's it. Um, everybody else is a worse predictor than that. So you know anything that we talk about can change in a day, can change in uh, you know two days, it can change in a week, um, because there's so many variables that impact the financial markets. You know this is it's always interested to me is that you know people go to do- to college to become doctors and lawyers and professors and they spend years studying their craft and people jump into the financial markets and go I can manage my own money and this is the single most complicated game on the planet you've got politics economics finance interest rates you know monetary policy fiscal policy you know all these things the weather it impacts what happens ultimately to the financial markets and and impacts outcomes to the economy and all these other things that you're having to factor in to earnings expectations, earnings growth, and you know what future outcomes are going to be, and and to think that you can forecast this more than a month in advance at best, I'd say three days in advance is probably your best pick. 
um, is just is just silly. You, you can't. We we have to be responsive to what markets do. That's the best thing that we can do. And try to we we can make some 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 ideas. We can say, look, we think inflation's a problem. We think disinflation is a problem. I don't care what side of the argument you're on. And you can have that thesis, but that thesis can change very quickly based upon changes with what the Fed does or with what the administration does or what happens uh, with Russia and Ukraine or whatever it is can change that thesis. And we make, have to make sure that we change our investment strategy to match the changes in the economy, in the markets, in the environment. Um, you know, so, so having said all that, <laughs> now let's talk about this bounce. Um, the markets were extremely oversold. And if we go back and look at the uh, September, kind of October rally, and of course, then we, 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 we sold off in October, hit the October lows. Then we rallied in November and December to a new high, and everybody was all excited, right? New highs, and everything's going to the moon. We've now had this nice big sell-off back to the October lows. Now, if you know, if my current prediction is correct, and it is just a guess, <laughs> um, we're so oversold here. I think we get a rally. But let's not forget that the Fed is changing the game. They are raising rates. They are going to be tightening their balance sheet. And I think there's a real possibility that we could rally this market back to the 50-day moving average uh, somewhere in that range. That may be about all we get out of this rally. When the markets get back to extremely overbought, I'm going to be looking to reduce exposure. Um, we actually started today. We're going to leg into a short position in our portfolio as a hedge. So as this market rally continues, we're going to continue building our short as the market rallies because we don't know exactly where the top is. So when, when this rally finishes and rolls over, then we'll already have the beginning of our hedge put back in for the next decline. We'll sell our equity strength into this, rebalance portfolio structures. Because if this market peaks at a lower level than we had back in early January when we set new highs, and we crack these October lows. So in other words, we come down and retest and crack these October lows, you will have a very well-formed head and shoulders pattern, which for all the bears out there, that's exactly the pattern you're looking for to have a bigger decline. It's also the exact pattern we saw back in 2008 when we liquidated all of our equity positions at that point in June of 08, when we actually cracked that head and shoulders pattern. It was a kind of an accelerating head and shoulders pattern that occurred back in 08, but very clear, very defined. And we broke that, retested the bottom of that neckline. I know this is a lot of technical stuff, so don't worry about it too much. It's not that big of a deal. But when we retested the bottom of that neckline and failed, that was the classic beginning of a bear market. That's all you needed to know. So we're, we have the potential makings of that. Now, what would negate that? Well, if we break out to all-time highs, it's done. We're, we're back into a bull trend and you need to be long equity. And my bet is this year is that grout, that this is going to rub some people the wrong way. I'm just going to tell you this right now. <laughs> I think that growth is going to wind up outperforming uh, uh, value uh, later on this year. Uh, okay. Wow. We have to dig into that. I just threw that. It's like one of those little bombs. You just throw it out there and then walk away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and we may have to make that like a, the focus of an entire, uh, you know, one of these sessions, because I'm not sure we can do it justice in the time we have left. <laughs> um, you said a number of important things there, and there's a couple I wanted to either underscore or dig into a little bit more. Um, so 
you know, you, you were talking about the importance of, um, of open-mindedness, I guess, uh, if, if that's really, you know, what's really going to be in ser serving investors. I mean, serves investors any, it serves them well in any, any circumstances, but I think particularly in ones that are like we're in now where volatility is so rampant. Um, uh, and we were talking before we got on the recording here, you know, uh, it's so interesting, both in response to the recap we recorded last week where you were, you know, going through the argument of a, of a bounce or reversal happening this week. Um, and then I had David Hunter on uh, the program, uh, just released his interviews yesterday and today. Um, he's got very extreme predictions. And in both cases, there are a lot of people sort of climbing on board saying, no, 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 this guy's wrong. They don't get it. Um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the comments were, uh, these guys don't realize that this market's done. It, this, this is the rollover. This is the, the washout. This is the big bust. Right. And, um, it's so funny because, uh, you know, I would say most people who watch wealthy on would consider me a bear. Um, and, uh, I, I don't try to be one philosophically. Yeah. You, you consider me a bear. <laughs> no, 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 no. I get, I get lumped into the bear bracket all the time. All right. Okay. Like, oh, Lance, he's always bearish. Right? Always bearish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I really think we're just sort of reacting to, you know, the macro data that, that we spend so much time looking at. Um, uh, and so you would think that, you know, it, it just it, it's ironic when people are tell, you know, sort of reacting to me like they think I'm being blindly bullish. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've been ever rarely called that before. Um, but, you know, look, I'm not here to say that, that they're right and I'm or, you know, they're right and I'm wrong or I'm, I'm right and they're wrong or vice versa. Uh, what I'm trying to caution people about is um, having this sort of all or nothing view of, of investing yeah. where it's, you know, a lot of people today, right. It's definitely def uh, definitely inflation, right. The inflation deflation debates over inflation's raging uh, you know, feds behind the curve trying to tighten the containment, but inflation has taken the system down and our overpriced uh, everything bubble uh, market is going to crash as the fed is forced to tighten interest rates. Right. Now, that actually might be true. That may sure. be what happens this year. And I can make a pretty good argument for a lot of those cases. But there's a lot of things that can happen on the way between now and then um, that if you position just for an you know, inflation death spiral, um, you might get knocked off way before mm -hmm. um, by, you know, trends that you didn't anticipate, you know, micro trends that you didn't anticipate, um, or maybe even some changes in the macro trend. You and I, again, before we started recording, uh, you were telling me about the latest uh, Atlanta Fed GDP now numbers. Um, the, the Q4 number just came in and it was uh, the final number came in. I think it was like six and a half percent GDP growth or something like that for Q4. What is the Atlanta Fed GDP now predicting for Q1, Lance? 0.1. Point 0.1, 0.1%, right? Yeah. Right. And we've talked about this in the past too. Atlanta Fed's always always wrong, right? They're correcting all the way, right? So they, their initial prediction is never the right one. But when they when they correct, they tend to always correct downwards, right? So we may actually see negative GDP growth in Q1. I'm not calling for that at this early right. date, but that's a tremendous quarter over quarter difference, right? From from just raging economic growth to basically stagnation in a single quarter. Um, and a number of the- Can I stop you real quick? Because yeah. you just hit two really important points and I, and I don't want to get too far downstream without addressing these. 
the, the one thing that, that you're talking about in particular is, you know, getting all off on one side of the, you know, making a one-sided bet because you're convinced this is going to happen. Um, I wrote an article back in 2017. It was a Dalbar study that had come out and Dalbar does a lot of investor research and it was called uh, why you suck as an investor. And, and what it went through and, and, and it is, and this is, it goes through the mistakes that investors make out of, out of the entire investing process, why investors underperform over time is 25% is they have lack of capital to invest. 25% is the capital is needed for something else. So they have to use their capital to go spend, you know, pay for a house or whatever. 50% of the underperformance is all due to psychological factors. The number one psychological factor that impedes investors is confirmation bias. And that's where you only watch videos of really bearish people or really bullish people. Um, you only read articles that are really bearish or really bullish. You only pay attention to the stuff that confirms whatever your bias is. And then you build your entire thesis around this investment strategy that you believe is to be true because you listen to John Hussman and Jim Grant or whoever, or you listen to Jim Cramer and, you know, Jim Paulson on the other side, it, you know, whoever you're listening to, you're only listening to those people. So you have this, and you're like, well, I'm obviously right because John Hussman and I'm not, and look, and don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing anybody. I'm just making a point here. John Hussman and, and Grant agree with my view. So I must be right because they're really smart guys. So they must be right. Or Jim Paulson and Jim Cramer, they agree with my bullish view because they're really smart guys. Jim Cramer's on TV. He must be smart. So that confirms my bias. And then you're wrong and you don't know what to do. So, you know, confirmation bias is the biggest thing. You know, um, our, our logo, if you ever look at our logo on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com, shameless plug, um, <laughs> it's an eagle. And one of our basic philosophies is that, you know, that get people off on the wrong side of investing is we have, just as you were just talking about a second ago, Adam, you know, people look at you as a bear. They look at me as a bear. I'm not bearish. I'm also not bullish. I don't care. My job is to manage money. And what our view is, is being an eagle. We're just simply looking at the data from the 30,000 foot view, drilling down, making an investment decision or making a prognosis about where we are in the markets and what we expect outcomes to be. And if you align yourself as either being bullish or bearish, you're locking yourself into a view that leads to confirmation bias. I'm bullish. I'm only going to read bullish stuff. I'm bearish. I'm only going to read bearish stuff. That's how you get on the wrong side of the trade. So the, the biggest enemy we have to fight is ourselves. Uh, there's an old saying that the, the, uh, Warren Buffett once said that the, the biggest enemy of the investor is the investor himself. And, you know, trying to, you know, align yourself on one side of the ledger or not will lead you to make an investment mistake over time more often than not. Great. Um, so couple of things just to build on that excellent, uh, those excellent comments. One is uh, another timeless statement, oftentimes attributed to Mark Twain, although I think officially they don't know who said it, it is it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so, right? <laughs> um, and that's that confirmation bias, right? You're just so rock certain that this is going to happen and that leaves you, you know, vulnerable to getting hit on the side of the head by something you didn't see coming, right? Um, and, uh, you know, one of the fields of study I really find fascinating is behavioral economics, right. which kind of boiled down to an essence is you would think humans would make great decisions about 
money related things because they're so quantifiable, right? So we can make really logical decisions. We actually make terribly illogical decisions around money because we're humans uh, and our, our, our human brain wiring, all our emotions, et cetera, they just throw us off, right? So uh, where I'm kind of going with all of this is, um, it's one of the reasons why, wait, what? Key reason why I brought your firm on as an advisor and why Wealthion refers people to you, but it's why I wanted to come on this program and start the market, the, the weekly market recaps with you, um, is to give people the benefit of access to a professional who really does their best to try to stay agnostic and isn't wedded to one approach or another, who is taking kind of the 30,000 foot view and is willing to pivot as the data pivots, right? So um, anyways, um, I just wanted to make sure that we really underscored right. for people that this, this you know, <laughs> if, if you're feeling really certain about what's going to happen next, that's probably a great sign to check yourself. Well, and look, and, and look, I mean, I, you know, full disclosure, we make mistakes, right? You know, we, we make investments. They don't work out right sometimes. You know, we cut them loose and we move right. on. The but, other but you direction. have a process to, to trim them early. <laughs> yeah, well, correct. You know, and sometimes, you know, we, I've got a couple that have gotten away from me in the past and you know, you do what you got to do. And, you know, those things happen. That's just part of the investment process. None of us are perfect. None of us are prescient. None of us can get it right every time. And if you ever, you know, if you if somebody ever tells you they never lose money in the market, they're lying. So, you know, it's just, that's part of the game. Um, it's just like business or anything else. Every great successful, you know, business owner, investor, whatever, has probably been right bankrupt at some point in his life. I mean, it's just part of the process of how we learn and grow and become better at our profession. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, being wed to a position, you know, one of my greatest lessons in, in life was I was absolutely certain back in 2000, early 2000, that Intel was going to crash. And this is back when Intel was soaring off to the moon at the time. And I loaded up on puts and I had all my puts in place. February of 2000, my puts were due to expire. I was going to make a kill and I was going to retire from the business. I was going to live on a beach. I was going to make so much money. All my options expired worthless and Intel crashed in March. <laughs> <laughs> that's just because the universe hates you, Lance. Exactly. But my point is, is that's the problem with being wed to some decision is that thing. You may be absolutely right. Right after you can't stomach any longer and you, and you right. get out, you're, you're going to be right. That happens all the time to people. And so it's so important to learn those lessons. And, you know, I've, I've been managing money for 30, over 30 years now. And look, I've made tons of mistakes. I have, I have been there, done that repeatedly. And even today, after 30 years, I still make mistakes. I write articles probably once a year, just talking about, you know, me, a culprit from last year, lessons I have to relearn every now and then, you know, we just, we're humans, man. We're, we're, you know, that's the problem of it. Uh, I want to pivot real quick back to the GDP report because it's so incredibly important here. You know, so you've got a large contingent of, of individuals believing that inflation is now a problem, right? Inflation, this inflation is going to be here. It's going to devastate the economy. You know, let's remember how we got here. And the fourth quarter GDP report you were just talking about is such a good example of how we got here. So when we go back and look at inflation, we injected $5 trillion worth of liquidity into the, into the economy. So people had all this money because we actually sent it to households. Now, this is not normally how we do fiscal policy. We send it to households. So everybody had their $1,400 checks twice and a $900 check. They're running out. They're buying laptops, TVs, couches, you know, Home Depot's booming because um, everybody's buying new lawnmowers or whatever. And so all that demand 
which by giving people money, you create demand. Even if the economy hadn't been shut down, if, if the economy had just been normal, you'd still have inflation because the demand surge would outstrip the supply we had available. This is because back in the 80s, we studied the Japanese model of manufacturing. And we said, you know what? We shouldn't be stocking all this inventory on our shelves. We should go, we, we can now, because of FedEx and all this other stuff, we can deliver so quickly. I'm gonna do just in time inventory management, which means I keep a bare minimum of inventory, just what I need to, to, to meet demand right now. And then as more demand comes in, I can build it and ship it so quickly that I'll just you know restock as I go. Well, that's all fine and dandy until you shut down the economy and nobody has inventory, right? So that's what created this massive surge in demand. Now, why, why is the fourth quarter GDP so important, particularly on this inflation question? 60% of the fourth quarter GDP was inventory restocking. Now, if I'm stocking up inventory at a time, and there was a chart out last week of retail inventories, which have surged massive levels of retail inventory right now. If inventory is surging and liquidity is coming out of the markets, in other words, there's no more $900 checks, there's no more $1,400 checks, real DPI has now decreased eight months in a row. Real disposable personal income has declined eight months in a row, not keeping up with current levels of inflation. That means I have less money to spend at home. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make your inflation deflation case for you, but just I want you to think about this. If inventories are surging and demand is falling, what do you think happens to prices? So if that's the premise, right, if that's what's going on economically, and if, and if the first quarter GDP is 0.1, what do you think the inflation equation is going out into the rest of this year? At a time when the Fed is now hiking interest rates, why do we hike rates? It's not to combat inflation. Int hiking interest rates in the short end does not impact inflation except by slowing economic growth. So if I slow economic growth and I tighten monetary policy and wages aren't growing and I'm not giving the economy more money and I've got an inventory build, what do you think happens to your inflation story? So if you're now stacking up your entire portfolio based on the expectation of surging inflation and we're going to have a repeat of the 70s, you may very well find yourself on the wrong side of the trade. I don't know if that's the case. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm, again, 30,000 foot looking down. That's what we're seeing right now. And that's why if deflation, or I should say actually disinflation, lower rates of inflation, is a story for this year, markets are going to start looking back towards companies that can grow earnings in a disinflationary environment, which is what? Manufacturing commodities or is it technology? That's what you need to be thinking about as you position your portfolio. Uh, it's super important. Um, and Folks, we're going to go along here. Uh, sorry for that, but we're just in such fertile territory here. I can't bear just to cut it off right away. Um, <laughs> and I do want to underscore as well, Lance, in last Saturday's Wealthion conference, um, the first two speakers, Lacey Hunt and Jim Rickards, basically made that case. Right, Lacey Hunt, you know, just went through all the data to show that uh, despite all the headlines that inflation is getting right now, deflation is still in the driver's seat. And Jim basically said, you know the prevalent term for at least you know the next bunch of months of this year that he sees is disinflation yeah. and then his big question is is you know do we end up tipping into real deflation maybe recession etc who knows but um uh it's it's it, it, 
to our earlier conversation, um, it, we're not in an environment where the path ahead is incredibly clear. There are right. sort of multiple paths that we could take, and we may even pursue some of them at the same time in parallel. And right. as an investor, you just need to be open, open-minded to that and be willing uh, to you know, diversify and allocate your portfolio in such a way that uh, whatever happens, you've at least got some either upside exposure to it or some down downside hedging. And, and I want to get to hedging here. Um, I feel like we've, spending a lot, we've been spending a lot of time talking about the vegetables, which are very important. But at the end of the day, everybody loves the taste of the steak. So let's get back to some of the <laughs> trades that you're making here yeah. for two reasons. Um, one, you mentioned that you were beginning to put on some short positions. Right. So first question is, is uh, can you, are there any other trades you're making right now that folks should know about? And then um, after you've answered that, if you can talk about how you're building that short exposure, because it sounds like you're, you kind of build a, it's, it's almost like a ladder up approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think folks would really benefit from sort of understanding your process and putting that together. Sure. So a couple of things that you want to, that we're, okay. So again, this is going back to our thesis about the markets and the economy. So if you don't agree with me, it's completely okay. Nothing wrong with that. I may be wrong and it wouldn't be the first time in my life. Um, so as, you know, again, I don't know if, if we take a look at the technicals of the market, we've bottomed at a very nice place, lots of support. We built lots of support there. And I think that now could potentially become a bottom, at least for a little bit of time. However, there's a lot of people that are trapped inside this decline and they're very worried. And they're just, and right now there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines just, you know, please just, you know, get me a little bit of a rally so I can get out. So that's why I think we can potentially get a rally here back towards the 50-day moving average. And, you know, it's not tremendously far from here, but I think, you know, probably 3% from here or so. Um, We get a rally back to that 50-day moving average. You'll start to see some selling come into the market as as a lot of these investors just kind of want to get, like, I'm done. I want to get out. I I don't like this anymore. That's not fun. (laughs) You know, know, a lot of the the retail traders, if if you take a look at the number of, of, on the Wall Street uh, uh, bets forum on Reddit, the number of people talking has just been a very steady decline, you know, just because that those trades just kind of worked out so poorly. They're just like, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah, That's it's a lot you, more fun to talk about how much money you're making versus how much money you're losing. <laughs> you're losing. And, and, and right. And, and so you've got a lot of people trapped. So I think once you get towards that 50 day moving average, um, potentially we get another bout of selling. So but I don't know if we get there. So what we're approaching this now, we're doing two things in our portfolio to hedge risk. The first thing is, is we're shifting. So our portfolios are a 60% equity, 40% model, uh, 40% bonds in our model. And then we build allocation structures off those two sleeves. But in our bond sleeve, we're starting to lengthen the duration of our portfolio. Um, and by doing that is what we're, we're looking at is the yield curve is inverting very quickly here. And, you know, we talked about volatility being the word for this year. The other word will be yield curve, which is actually two words, but you get the idea. Um, But that's the thing you want to watch. That yield curve is inverting very quickly. So we're starting to shift our bond duration out a little bit longer. So we're looking to add, we've been buying uh, 10-year treasury bonds here over the last couple of weeks. We're going to continue to kind of build that position. And and we were real short the yield curve. We're starting to, and as the yield curve is, is starting to rise on the short end, we're shifting back out to the longer end of the curve to participate with the yield curve flattening as or declining rather and pick up on the capital appreciation in 10-year treasury bonds as yields fall back towards 1% or less later this year. We'll talk about that next week. Um, 
<laughs> but yeah. the on the on the equity side, I do have some equity long exposures. And, and again, you know, when I talked about growth stocks earlier, it doesn't mean that's all you have to own. We own value. We own some commodity basic material type stocks. We own some growth stocks. And so, you know, we realize there's these shifting rotations in the markets. And so, you know, our portfolios owns value because value is always a good place to be in a, in a late stage economic market cycle that we're in. I want to own value. So we own value. But, you know, we own some of the major, you know, technology companies. We own Microsoft. We own Apple. Those have been great benefits this week of having that because if we see these deflationary pressures come into the into the economy those are the companies that are most likely going to participate because they have proven time and time again that they can grow earnings in a deflationary economy because that's what they've been doing for the last 10 years um so we'll likely see money and, and particularly because they're so big and they're liquid that's where institutions hide so when they've got to have money invested they got to have money in the market they hide in these big cap companies like Apple and Microsoft because they're highly liquid. So they're almost like a hedge in some manners. And they've actually held up better than a lot of other areas of the technology market as well. So, you know, we can talk about the ARC thing later, but you get the idea. So, you know, we we are positioning our equity portfolio, but now we're starting to add a short position because as this market rallies, and we'll just leg into it, we bought a little bit today. We'll probably buy, you know, if the market rallies again on Monday, which wouldn't surprise me here, um, you know, we might buy a little bit more Monday or Tuesday. We might buy a little bit more, you know, Thursday, Friday. And as we get closer to that 50-day moving average, we'll continue to build that short position. And then we'll start reducing. Once we kind of get our short position where we want it, we'll start to reduce our equity. So our goal is, is that by the time we get to the next overbought condition of the markets, we'll be somewhere around 30 to 35% exposure to equity in total and have 40 to 45% exposure to bonds and then a chunk of cash. And the goal of the cash will be to buy positions on the next decline. Right. Deploy that on the next decline. Yeah. All right. Great. And when you talk about taking short positions, are you, are you buying, are, are you shorting specific stocks? Are you buying ETFs? Are you using puts? Yeah. Um, what, how, what's your mix there? <laughs> so, we will short individual stocks, but when we're using it for a hedge like this, we're basically just shorting the whole market. So uh, a couple of ways that we can do that, and it depends on how much capital I want to commit to building a short position. So right now we're just using SH as an example, which is just a, a single uh, S&P 500 short position. It's just, it just does the exact opposite of whatever the S&P does. So as the market rallies, that position is going to lag and it's going to drag on my portfolio. It's okay because I've got other positions that are outperforming the markets right now. Um, they're doing great, so no problem with that. Um, so when I want to commit less capital, and, and this is something we'll do, if we start, if we get up to our target level, we're at a full you know, position on our short, and we begin to decline, and then if we break those October lows, then I'll flip that short position into a leveraged short position because I can use the same amount of capital but double the hedge to my portfolio. So if I use something like SDS, which is a 2X short um, position, I can use you know, a 5% weight in that position actually equals 10% of my total portfolio because of the leverage component. So I can hedge 10% of my allocation through one position without committing a lot more capital to it. Now, there's a lot of risk to that. I don't want to 
dis, you know, just be disingenuous and say, that's just a great way to do it. Leverage always has problems with it. And it's got to be managed very, very closely. And when we start using, and we've done this before successfully, but when we use leverage short positions or leverage long, we've used leverage long as well, we really constrain our risk profile parameters. So our, our short, our, you know, where our stop losses are, where our deviations are from moving averages, those all get brought in very, very close. We, do, we don't give that leverage a lot of position because it can run so quickly in the wrong direction. So we wanna monitor that and, and keep it on a very short leash. But you know, part, of, part of the risk management process is making sure that we're not over committing capital in the portfolio to something that could potentially hurt us. So, you know, at the same time that we're, you know, hedging on one side, we're also committing capital to other things that preserve capital like fixed income. All right, thanks so much for doing that, Lance. Um, we talk a lot on this program about the importance of risk management. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people hear that word, but they don't always often necessarily know exactly what it means. You just described sort of a single execution of risk management. It's a broader spectrum than what we've had time to talk about in here, but I think you just made it really relevant to people there on, you know, one particular way in which you guys use it. And, and again, you know, having it be a bit of a drag on your performance, you know, the way to think about that is, well, it's just the way that like, you know, the insurance policies that I, I buy every year are a drag on my savings for the year. Yeah, you know, they they cost money, but man, if something bad happens and I have the insurance, I'm way better off than if I didn't have it, right? All right, thanks so much for doing that. Uh, I normally like to end these things with, uh, you know, asking you some sort of practical bit of advice uh, for the listeners. I think we already did that in spades, this, uh, this video where we really went deep on don't have that all or nothing mindset. Um, and we're so long over time here that I'm going to have to cut it short. I do want to let folks know that if they want to hear you expound on the macro side of things, because we tend to be a lot more micro in these recaps, um, that they can go and they can purchase the uh, replay videos from last week's conference and they can hear the, you know, the, the wonderful presentations from the Lacey's Hunts and the Jim Rogers's and the Jim Grant's and the Luke Romans and the long list of other people that were there, but they can see you really dive deep into the macro part and kind of share your specific view where you think the puck's headed uh, at the high level. Um, folks, if you've enjoyed this and if you're enjoying these weekly recaps, do us a favor and hit that like button uh, to let us know. And while you're down there, click the subscribe button too, if you haven't already. And Lance, thanks so much for doing another one of these weeks. This is a great thing we got going here. Well, and hopefully next week will be a follow through for this week. So there you Fingers go. Fingers crossed. <laughs> All right, buddy. Take care. Thank you. Bye.